Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, from the wheel to the car to what comes next, with Tom Standage and his new book, A Brief History of Motion. Tom Standage is deputy editor of The Economist and author of six previous history books, including Writing on the Wall, The New York Times bestsellers A History of the World in Six Glasses and An Edible History of Humanity, both of which we talked about on Little Atoms many years ago, and The Victorian Internet. His writing has also appeared in The New York Times, The Guardian, Wired and other publications. And today we're going to talk about Tom's latest book, which is A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. Tom, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hello, it's great to be here again. First of all, before I read this book, I would have presumed the question, who invented the wheel, was a question like, who invented fire? Like something that we could not possibly know it was so far back. But it turns out that that's not actually the case. Well, sort of. I mean, we have some idea. So fire really is a very long time ago. But wheels, we've got a much better idea of when and where they first appeared. And they appear about 3500 BC. And it was long assumed that they were invented in Mesopotamia because the Mesopotamians invented an awful lot of stuff around that time, like cities and writing and large-scale beer production. And so it was assumed that they invented wheels too. They also had potter's wheels and, you know, grinding wheels. They had basically wheels that were on their side. So it wouldn't be a big leap to have a, a wheel on the side of a, of a vehicle or something like that. However, the latest archaeological evidence suggests that, in fact, wheels were invented in Central Europe and then spread very quickly around the top of the Black Sea to Mesopotamia. So the oldest wheels we have, which have been carbon dated, are from places like Lupiana. There's one of them called the Lupiana wheel, which is the oldest sort of surviving wheel. And um, the theory is that they were invented by people who were mining copper in the Carpathian Mountains and they would have had to move a lot of ore around in baskets so soil, basically, that's rich in copper. And someone had the bright idea of putting wheels on the side to make it easier to do this. And that's quite plausible, I think. Also, people who were mining copper would have had copper tools, which you need in order to split logs and chisel things and, and actually make your, your first wheel. And those early wheels would not have been... I mean, people think of sort of Fred Flintstone wheels. They think of a slice chopped off a log. That would actually make a really terrible wheel. And the other thing is it needs a saw, and saws weren't invented until 2,000 years after wheels. So that's not how it worked. Instead, the first 
first wheels were made by splitting logs and then fastening multiple planks together with battens and then chiseling a circle out of the resulting sort of sheet of wood. And um, that's what the Lupiana wheel looks like. And those wheels are much stronger, much better and can cope with you know uneven ground compared with a slice of log. Even if you could make one, uh, the grain would mean that it would fall apart quite quickly and it would also, being quite a small wheel, would not um, go over bumps very well. So we think that's where it, the wheel originated. Obviously, we don't know the name of the person who did this, uh, but I think that's quite plausible. So, so yeah, it looks like it was European in origin. So despite the obvious benefits of this revolutionary invention, the wheel actually takes quite a long time to gain acceptance, doesn't it? Yes, I'm not sure the benefits were that obvious. I mean, uh, the classic example here is, um, so the wheel spreads, uh, so it's used probably for mining purposes first, and then people realise you could make a, a wagon, and then you can use that to move agricultural produce, so you can bring the harvest into a village using a wagon, and the idea of wagons drawn by oxen, you know, pops up very quickly, and so you get that sort of use of it in Europe, and then around the north of the Black Sea, you get people essentially with nomadic lifestyles who live in giant wagons and that allows them to move with their herds to where the grazing is best and you get wagon graves where people who had that sort of lifestyle would be buried in graves that have a wheel in each of the corners of the grave so the, the grave becomes a sort of celestial chariot or celestial wagon I should say because chariots are two wheeled uh, taking them to the um, to the afterlife and then in Mesopotamia we see wheels that are used primarily for sort of ceremonial things so the king sort of parades in front of people or, or views the battle from the, the high vantage point of a of a vehicle. But the really striking thing is we know the Mesopotamians have wheels then about sort of 3000 BC-ish. The Egyptians next door borrow all sorts of other things from the Mesopotamians. In particular, writing looks like it was an idea that the Egyptians heard about from the Mesopotamians and they definitely traded with them. So they knew about wheels, but they didn't bother to adopt them. And in in fact, the the Egyptians built the pyramids entirely without using wheels. And that's because if you're in Egypt, which is essentially a very, very long, thin civilization built next to a river, it's much easier to move things around on rafts. And there was no wheeled vehicle on earth that would have been able to carry one of the blocks used in the Great Pyramid. I mean, they were just so heavy. So it was much easier to use water. And then once you got the blocks to the, you know, the destination uh, where you wanted to actually, you know, the building site, you would use rollers or sleds or something like that to move them around. And it looks like it was rollers and um, people sort of pouring water onto the sand uh, to make it all a bit more slippery. And that was how they were moved around. So the Egyptians didn't really bother with wheels at all. And it's only when the war chariot is invented by the Hittites to the north in what's now Turkey, and they start conquering big chunks of the Middle East, that the Egyptians wake up and go, ah, maybe we do need wheels after all. So they then become very good at building war chariots. And there's a couple of these chariots in Tutankhamun's tomb, in fact. They're incredibly small and light. They've got big spoked wheels, which allows them to go much faster rather than these big solid chunky wheels that came before. One of them weighs about 35 kilograms. (laughs) And, uh, you know, but that was the sort of Ferrari of its day. And then you get this brief heyday of the war chariot. And that's also the origin of the idea that you are what you drive. So the most high status people, the kings and the gods and the great warriors, are invariably depicted smiting their enemies in chariots. And so this idea that the cooler you are, the cooler your vehicle has to be originates from then. The chariot is obviously a vehicle of war, which is obviously, you know, war is an incredibly manly thing to do. And I was fascinated by the idea that vehicles just for the conveyance of people, you know, what would eventually become the coach, the carriage, the stagecoach, which we'll talk about the development of that in a second. But for centuries, the idea of going around on a cart, a vehicle, is seen as an incredibly unmanly pursuit. 
Exactly. Yeah. So what happens is that it's very manly to be in your war chariot smiting your enemies up until from about sort of 1500 BC up until about 400 BC. And then there's this particular, there's this great battle between Alexander the Great and the Persians where the Greeks are not using chariots, they're using cavalry. And what's happened is that horses have been bred over this period to pull chariots and and the horses are bred to be bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger so they can go faster and faster. And then people eventually realise you can put a fully armoured warrior on the back of a horse and then you don't need the chariot at all. And then you can do things like go up hills and go over uneven ground and, and, you know, it's just as quick as a chariot and a lot less faffing around. So the Greeks beat the Persians and there's a famous depiction of this. It was a painting that was subsequently copied into a mosaic that is then preserved at Pompeii. So we have this sort of second or third hand, but it's the famous depiction of Alexander the Great on horseback, triumphant, while uh, King Darius flees the battlefield humiliated in a chariot. So chariots were, were very uncool and by the time the Romans come along, they're only used for chariot racing for fun and they're also used in um, processions if you if you're a roman general and you have a, a triumph then you you stand in a ceremonial chariot but roman soldiers wouldn't be seen dead in a chariot they didn't use them when caesar got to britain and uh you know was fighting the the britons uh, he was quite surprised to see they were still using chariots he thought that was quite quaint because they died out in essentially the middle east and europe by that stage so chariots are very uncool and real men ride horses and you get this great period of equestrian statues in rome and um and then you get the idea of the knight in shining armour on horseback, which is where that evolves into, and the idea of, of chivalry and the right behaviour and all the rules that you have, you know, for the knights of the round table and all that kind of thing. One of the rules is you never go in a vehicle with wheels because they're just for women, and it's incredibly unmanly to do so. And this is where we get the idea of the princess who travels in a gilded carriage, and she marries the knight on horseback, but he's always the knight on horseback. He doesn't get into the carriage and ride along with her because that would be extremely unmanly. And so, yes, you have this idea, and in fact, it originates in the Roman period, real vehicles weren't allowed in the city of Rome. An exception was made for the emperor's mother was allowed to travel in a sort of fancy, what was called a carpentum, which is a sort of um, a fancy sort of carriage. I mean, it's not quite getting to where a carriage is. It's, it's probably two-wheeled, but it's got sort of, you know, silks and things on it. And then gradually this privilege was extended to the wives of senators and other senior Roman women. And so the idea that, you know, wheels are for high-status women and definitely not for men and definitely not for everybody else. I mean, maybe the farmers like moving stuff around on their carts, but that's um that's different and they don't count anyway because they're not high status men. So um so you do get this sort of extraordinary gendering of wheeled vehicles that they are for women or for low status men. So tell us then about the development of the coat. Well, this is an when... acceptable form of, of exactly. Of so then, so everything changes again in about 1450, the mid 15th century, and this is because a new kind of of wheeled vehicle, uh, the coach, is invented. In fact, it's named after the town of Coach, which is in Austria-Hungary somewhere. And um, the idea is that this is suddenly seen as a manly sort of vehicle. And what brought about this change? And what seems to have brought it about was the development of gunpowder weapons. And that means that suddenly the knight on horseback is is the person who's looking really old-fashioned, and it's the people who are wheeled wielding these new weapons, which are kind of very small cannons or arquebuses, which are sort of shotguns, and they're quite heavy. And so essentially what happened was that this idea developed of creating a wagon fort where you have wagons and um, when you're having a battle, you circle the wagons and, and connect them together with chains. And then everyone inside gets out their guns and cannons and you have this sort of impenetrable fortress that the knights charge at you and you just shoot at them with your cannons. And so suddenly knights on horseback looked very uncool and, and obsolete and everyone wanted to have these new 
new vehicles. And so the idea of riding um, in coaches, and a coach is then essentially a, a high-speed wagon. So it's got it's got spoked wheels like a chariot, and it's it can go really fast. And suddenly being able to drive a coach really quickly becomes a sign of manliness again. And also coaches and carriages become a sign of wealth, and you know people want to show how rich they are. There's a lovely line in Samuel Pepys's diary where he finally becomes rich enough to buy his own carriage in London. And he goes to the theatre with his wife, and this is in the 1660s at, at some point. Um, he goes to the theatre with his wife purely so that everybody can see him and her arrive in the carriage. And they really care what the show is. It's, but it, you can totally get the, the new car smell coming off the, um, Peeps' diary because he's like, look at me, I've got, I've got new wheels. Aren't I cool? And we're back in the world of you are what you drive. And if you have a high-status vehicle, you must be a high-status person. There's obviously there's other forms of transport that develop. You talk in the book about the development of steam and the steam engine and parallel that with the the rise of the bicycle which gives people a sort of you know a, a new sort of autonomy um, but I want to get us to talk in the main in the second half about the development of the car and the car fundamentally comes about because there is a major problem developing in cities and this all centers around horses tell us what a city like New York or London would have been like just before the development of the car yeah, absolutely. So yes, and this is in fact why I you know, think this story is worth revisiting today. What happened in the 1890s was people realised that the dominant means of urban transport had become unsustainable. And the dominant means of urban transport at that point was horse-drawn vehicles, whether that was wagons to move goods around, whether it was handsome cabs um, like taxis, whether it was omnibuses, horse buses that are essentially buses pulled by horses. The problem was that the horses were producing a lot of poo and uh, it was going everywhere. It was very smelly. Originally, you could actually charge people to come and collect it and they would take it off to the country and sell it to farmers and what starts to happen in the second half of the 19th century is the volume of it goes up so much that they the cities have to stop paying people to take it away the farmers don't want it they've discovered guano which is a much more efficient fertilizer so there's all of this poo piling up and in fact new york city has several dumps where it's taken and some of them are in quite well-to-do neighborhoods and people start petitions saying please can you get rid of the poo it really smells we're worried about the health effects and you'd have thought that the invention of the the railway would make things better but it actually makes things worse because the better you connect cities, the easier it is to move goods and people between them, the more demand you need for horse-drawn transport within those cities to move the people and the goods when they get to their destination. And so um, you get this problem where the horse population is actually growing faster than the human population in these big, fast-growing cities like London and New York. And that shows that it's unsustainable, that the number of horses that they need is going up and up and up and up, and uh, something's got to give, something's got to change. And so that's the the sort of environment in which the horseless carriage uh, suddenly looks very attractive. And and people who've developed these horseless carriages, and there are some powered by steam and some electric ones and some powered by internal combustion engines. But they're saying that this is going to be great because it's going to solve all your problems. It's not going to be any horse poo coming out of these vehicles. There's not going to be traffic problems anymore because all of the streets have become completely gridlocked with horse-drawn vehicles by this point. But because a horseless carriage is half the size, it doesn't have the horse in front. It just has the carriage in the back. Suddenly that frees up lots of road space. And so that was going to solve all the traffic problems. You're also not going to have accidents anymore because you can frighten a horse, but you can't frighten a car and uh, it was also going to be much quieter because you've got these uh, metal rims around the wheels of wagons that are rattling over cobblestones all day and all night and cars by contrast have rubber tires and so they're almost silent says Scientific American. Um, so this was going to solve all the problems so you can see why the automobile, the car was sort of hailed as the technology that was going to fix everything and it's embraced you know, very quickly starting in the 1890s. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tom Standage and we're talking about his book, A Brief History of Motion, from the wheel to the car to what comes next. And so, Tom, we're, we're at the, the very beginning of the rise of the automobile, the car, which, you know, as you've hinted at, will now latterly find ourselves in exactly the same position that, you know, the, the late Victorians were with horses, where there are, you know, there are far too many cars on the road and they're polluting things, albeit not manure. Tell us what the first, what were the first things that could actually be called a car? You talk about the first ever real car journey, which was taken yes. by a... Uh, Berta Benz. No, absolutely. So the car, weirdly, is actually descended from the bicycle. You might have thought it's a sort of road-going locomotive, but it's not. And in fact, uh, the first sort of modern automobile, the Benz Motorwagen from 1886, is built using bicycle parts. So it has two large wheels at the back. It has a small wheel at the front controlled with a tiller. The steering wheel comes a bit more than 10 years later. The reason we count this as the first car is it's been specifically built around an internal combustion engine. So it's not, you know, people have fit internal combustion engines into existing vehicles in a couple of other cases. So, uh, so for example, uh, the previous year, some people had put an internal combustion engine on a bicycle and made the first motorbike. So that actually comes before the first car. But yes, um, Benz has developed this three-wheeler with, in fact, the help of his wife, and they've tested it in the yard outside their house, and it could do about 10 miles an hour. And um, he's like, this is pretty cool, but you know, I need to I need to keep refining this. It's not ready for, for prime time yet. And she 
starts to get quite frustrated by this and, and she thinks, well, he's never going to think it's perfect. I need to show him that it's actually useful now. So she, one morning without telling him, takes their two teenage sons and goes off on a road trip. She literally takes the prototype car and heads off and drives 65 miles, takes her all day to her mother's house to visit her mum. And when she gets there, she sends him a telegram saying, I've taken the car and the boys and we've gone to see my mum. And um, on the way, they have various adventures. They discover that going up hills is quite problematic. The motor wagon has the lowest gear isn't basically powerful enough to get the car up a hill. This is one of the reasons she takes the boys so they can get out and push. She's able to buy fuel for it. You may wonder about that. It's because at the time petrol was sold as a cleaning fluid, as a solvent. And so you could buy it at the chemist. And so the um, the chemist where she stops to buy fuel is now commemorated as the world's first filling station. And she gets to her mum's and uh, she spends a few days there and then she drives back again. There are various you know stories about what she has to do. At one point, she has to unblock a fuel line using a, a hat pin. At another point, something goes wrong and she has to use her garters to fix it uh, and so on and so on. And she also finds that going down the hills, the brakes really aren't good enough to slow the vehicle. So she stops off at a cobbler's and has him add a layer of leather to the brake pads to make them grip better. So she gets back home again and she says, look, this car is perfectly good. You need to make the lower gear a bit better. I've improved the brake pads, um, but basically it's ready to go. And this gives Benz the uh, the motivation. So he, he fixes the lower gear. A few weeks later, he shows the car at an exhibition for the first time in public. He wins the sort of gold medal. He's in all the papers and we're off to the races because that's the point where um, he starts selling these things and people all over Europe start to say, I'd like to buy one or I'd like to license the design from you and sell them in my country. And that's the beginning of the car as a commercial product. Well, you, you talk about the development of the car as a sort of commercial product, a consumer good, a desirable consumer good, mainly in, in the US through the sort of the different approaches of Henry Ford and the General Motors company, um, which we'll talk about in a second. But one of the things, you don't actually discuss this in the book, but one of the things that the book threw up for me was you talk about how the founder, the original founder of General Motors, who was very early on booted out of his own company, teaming up with racing driver Louis Chevrolet, a famous name, obviously, in motoring history, and then basically getting back onto General Motors. But the question I wanted to ask was, and I don't know if you came across this in your research, Tom, but what on earth was Chevrolet racing? So originally, cars were toys for the rich. And so um, by the mid 1890s, you could buy a car and there were, you know, by about 1900, there's about 8,000 cars in Europe and about 8,000 in America, roughly. They are essentially toys for the rich. And so if you think of um, the character of Toad in The Wind of the Willows, Toad is based on, is a caricature of a rich man with a car who's being a pain and sort of driving around making clouds of smoke and driving other people off the road and driving very dangerously and that's how people saw drivers at the time the early owners of cars were these rich people who just went around and found it annoying that there were horse-drawn carriages on the roads that didn't allow them to drive faster and they ran over people's dogs and chickens and children in some cases and you know um, one of them uh, in fact toad is modeled on william k vanderbilt ii he always said always travel with a gun because you never know when you might get into a you know a fight with the peasant basically. So the early drivers were really an obnoxious bunch of rich people. And what they loved to do was have races to show essentially how wonderful these new inventions were and go on adventures. And so they did all sorts of, you know, the French started this with the Paris-Rouen race and then the Paris-Bordeaux race. And then you get sort of transcontinental races where people drive across the uh, the US. So that's what's happening in the, um, in the first decade of the 20th century. There's this very sort of manly sport of motor racing. Uh, it's completely limited to the super rich. 
and uh, a lot of people think they're completely obnoxious. And that's what Chevrolet was doing, and um, and that's why he was a famous name. But nonetheless, this would have been at like I don't know, fourteen mile an hour or something. Oh no, some of the cars were starting to be able to go faster, and you'd get you know the the speed records starting to be set and so on. So yeah, some of these cars could by this stage you know certainly do forty or fifty and and possibly more than that. Okay, I mean, well that's um, a le- that's a legitimate yeah. racing driver. Then. Fair yeah. enough. <laughs> I was just imagining them going around in circles at like ten mile an hour. No, 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 no. That was so overtaking. Exactly. Well, the Benz Motorwagen was a very the Benz Motorwagen was a very underpowered vehicle, and it was also it was a kind of vehicle called a horseless carriage in the sense that it looked like a carriage without a horse. And what happened was that when the French um, engineers started building cars, they came up with what was called the Système Panard, which was essentially the idea that you put the engine at the front and it drives the rear wheels, and you can have a really big engine under the bonnet that you look along. And they started building these much more powerful cars that became known as road locomotives. And so those were what the the rich people like to buy they didn't buy these little twee sort of lightweight carriages that you could totter around in um they, that was a different kind of product and those products were much cheaper um so the you know the more expensive touring cars were what the rich went for and what the genius of the model t was that it was as cheap as a, a horseless carriage one of these little lightweight vehicles and it was quite a you know small lightweight vehicle but it had a very powerful engine and so it actually started beating these much more expensive much more powerful cars in races and this was this was the the genius of the Model T that it was the best of both worlds. Everybody was, you know, familiar with Henry Ford and the, and the Model T Ford and everything. But let's talk about what the essential differences were between Ford's company and General Motors and how General Motors' method eventually came to supersede it. They're essentially opposite. So the, the Model T triumphed because it was built on a moving production line. That was the, the great innovation. And there was only one of it. Uh, so, you know, Ford did not make a range of lots of vehicles. They basically said it's the Model T in black. That's it. And there were slight variations in the body design, but essentially they were very cosmetic. So this meant that they could really, really optimize the manufacturing. And the numbers are really mind boggling. There were 8,000 cars in America in 1900. There were 8 million in 1920. And about two thirds of them were Model Ts. And that is a thousand growth in 20 years, which is the same as doubling every two years for 20 years or 10 times, because 2 to the 10 is 1,024. In other words, it's Moore's Law because it's the same rate of growth. And we're used to thinking of Moore's Law as a sort of computer era thing. And of course, you know, we're used to our computers get faster and our iPhones get better and the cameras get better and all this kind of stuff. Actually, they're both uh, reflections of a deeper law called Wright's Law, which says that the more you make of something, the better you get at it and the cheaper it becomes to make it. And so that's what happened with the Model T. It was an amazing, amazing achievement. So General Motors are looking at this and they're going, right, we need to adopt um, mass production as well. So they do it too. But General Motors has this uh, stable of, of five or six different brands. And they have this brilliant idea of aiming different brands at, at different markets. And the idea of a ladder of brands that you, maybe you buy this car this year, but next time you buy a car, you buy a slightly fancier one. And what happened was that the Model T was still in production 15 years after it had been launched and basically still looked the same. And um, people wanted something else. They wanted a design. They wanted a closed body design that you could drive to the office in. And the Model T didn't have windows that you could close. You know, they wanted a more sophisticated car and they wanted a car that could express something about them and this is exactly what General Motors cottoned on to so it offers this range of vehicles at different price points different colours it would change the design every year so you get this idea of deliberate obsolescence built in obsolescence so that you know last year's model suddenly looks a bit dated and then people want to trade up more often and the other thing they did was they offered people credit to buy these cars and Ford was terribly old fashioned about this he was like if you haven't got the money I'm not selling you a car Um, whereas um, GM set up this finance arm to, to basically help people buy their cars 
So they were total opposites of each other. And this meant that Ford, you know, won to begin with, and then General Motors superseded him and, uh, and you know, the Model T was eventually cancelled and Ford had to switch to uh, a sort of more of a portfolio of brands model like GM. What's interesting is if you look at the smartphone today, smartphones are built on assembly lines. So they're built like Fords, they're built like Model Ts, but they're sold like GM vehicles because you have this you know, hierarchy of of brands, different models. You know which model you have um, says something about who you are. You customize it. It's the it's become the sort of dominant technology of of self expression in the way that the car used to be. So these are and of course you have this built in obsolescence. That every year the new iPhone comes out and makes last year's look a bit a bit dated. And if you look at the iPhone 13 that's just come out, the 13, not the 13 Pro, has two cameras as the um the 12 did last year, but they've moved the orientation of the cameras so that they're positioned diagonally instead of one above the other as in the 12 and this means you can tell by looking whether someone's got a 12 or a 13 and that means that people with 12s know that everyone knows they've got a 12 and not a 13 and you, you're back to kind of oh my phones are a bit dated maybe i need to get a new one in the the early years of the of the proliferation of the car both in a, in america and in europe there becomes a sort of unforeseen battle between pedestrians and drivers as to who basically has the right of way in roads tell us something about that fight if you look at film from the early 20th century and there are you know films of london and paris and new york and places like that uh, and you see all these different vehicles on the road you see bicycles you see some cars you see horse drawn vehicles you see pedestrians and everyone's weaving in and out of each other very efficiently and what happens is that people with cars suddenly start to get frustrated that they've got these cars that can potentially go much faster than everything else on the road and they're not able to to do that and so they start to drive faster and there start to be a lot of accidents and the industry's response is to say okay the way we're going to deal with this is we're going to blame it on everyone else and so they come up with the idea of road safety and road safety is actually is code for get out of the way of the cars and it's very very hard for people alive today to realize this that we've we've sort of been hoodwinked like this. I mean, you know, when we were little and we went to school, we had classes on road safety. But road safety was like, you should not be in the road. Road is naturally a place where that belongs to cars. And if you're in the in the road and a car's coming, you should get out of the way. And if the car hits you, it's your fault. And all of this is a result of an incredibly successful propaganda campaign done in the, in the 1920s by the car industry to persuade people that the reason accidents happened was that there was insufficient education of pedestrians in the matter of safety. And so they produced lots of brochures and, you know, they pretended to be, I mean, they set up all these journals of road safety which turned out to all be funded by the the car industry and they sent them to all the police forces who thought they were sort of impartial scientific journals of road safety um and in fact it was all just the car industry saying we're terrified that people are going to blame us for these accidents for these death you know child killing death machines so we're going to change the subject and it's incredibly successful and it's only in recent years that people in some parts of the world have started to say hang on a minute is this really the way we want things to work it turns out it doesn't matter how much space you give cars much road space how much street space they always want more and so many cities have started to you know take space back from cars we've seen a lot of this during the pandemic as well but it was happening beforehand in places in scandinavia parts of central london you know pedestrianized or turned into these shared spaces like around the science museum if you've ever been on that street you know cars sort of crawl along that road because they're not quite sure if they should be there or not that's the way things used to be they are you know equal users of the road with with pedestrians and in fact the pedestrians are giving them the side eye a lot of the time similarly if you go to the center of helsinki it is possible to drive a car there but good luck 
stuck trying to find a parking space and everyone's looking at these cars going why are you here why haven't you taken the tram or the bus or cycled and you know I think this is a good thing that you have much more pleasant streets when they're not completely dominated by cars you talk about how obviously cars as well as taking over the roads also you know started to change how we designed our, our various cities people started living in suburbs they designed our eating and entertainment and shopping habits and of course were you know incredibly polluting and and relying on a never dwindling unrenewable energy source so obviously, you know, one of the ways that we're, we're thinking about dealing with that now is obviously electric cars. And you talk in the book about how the electric car has actually been there right from the very beginning, the development of the, of the car in the first place. Yes, the best-selling car in America in 1897 was an electric car. And there were various attempts to make sort of electric ride-hailing networks in the 1890s in America. You know, so it is it has been there all along. It turned out, though, that the big problem was the batteries. It has been the whole of the 20th century. The batteries, lead-acid batteries, are big and heavy, and they can't carry much energy. And so given that the car was seen as a sort of freedom machine for manly men to sort of go on adventures and drive across continents, you're not going to do that in an electric car. So uh, the petrol engine prevailed, and, um, and the electric electric car sort of hung on for a bit. It was marketed as a woman's car in the 1910s because you didn't have to be strong to turn the starter because it wasn't a starter and you didn't have to be a mechanic to keep it working because early internal combustion engines were very unreliable and women were assumed not to be any good at mechanics and, you know, it wasn't sort of greasy and, and dirty and oily so you wouldn't get something on your dress. Uh, and so, and also I think men, including Henry Ford, in fact, liked the idea that if their wives wanted cars, it was better to get them an electric car because they couldn't run off in it because they wouldn't be able to get very far because the battery would run out. So they'd only be able to sort of go into town see their friends or go shopping and then come back again and then plug the car in in the stable um, and, and charge it again so yes the electric car was seen as very much the second best you've got this gendering of vehicles again just like we had with um with the carriage before and it's only with the invention of the lithium-ion battery which was not invented to go in cars it was invented to go in consumer electronics like camcorders that it suddenly becomes possible to have an electric car that isn't rubbish and the um, prototype that led to the foundation of tesla which is a car called the t0 it was built by two enthusiasts who bought 7,000 camcorder batteries and put them in an electric car. And it, boy, could it accelerate because lithium-ion has this much better energy density. And so when Elon Musk and other people saw it, they were like, OK, this is it. We can now make electric cars. So, yeah, it has been there all along, but the problem has been there all along. Ford and Edison actually tried to make a, a good electric car in the 20s, and they failed. And um, it wasn't Edison's fault. He was trying to develop a new battery technology, um, and his various attempts at it didn't work. So Elon Musk succeeded where Edison and failed because someone else had conveniently invented the lithium-ion battery for him. And to finish it off, Tom, listeners on this show in the past have probably heard me be uh, quite cynical about the, the dream of the driverless car, which I, I'm not convinced is a thing that we could ever fully have. And I wondered, um, you know, having have you looked into it for this book what your opinion is is, is it something is is there ever going to be a world with fully automated cars yes and no so i have been in quite a few of them and i think what's most likely to happen is the problem is that we're trying to build a, a autonomous cars that can be slotted into the existing exactly um, system yeah. the existing and so they have to be able to get along with existing road users and um you know that's that's very very difficult and in fact the fact that road accidents happen shows you that human drivers can't cope with that all the time mm. so we are sort of asking the impossible of them that's why I think it's most likely that we'll see autonomous vehicles deployed in, at scale in China, because the Chinese authorities will say this 
district of this city is now for autonomous vehicles. Everyone else has to get off the roads. Uh, if you're on the road there, then, you know, you're breaking the law. And also we're going to put in lots of infrastructure that helps the autonomous cars figure out where they are. And so they still work when it's raining and, and stuff like that. And we'll map those neighborhoods very, very well. So they've got very, very good 3D maps. And so if you do that, you can make this work. And um, and then we'll see if it's actually useful and if it, if it makes sense and if the economics add up. And it may be that it does. I don't know. I think it is possible. I mean, you know, cars are, are sort of taking over more and more features of, of driving now. And if you get a, you know, you, you drive an old car and it, the lights don't come on and the windscreen wipers don't come on on their own, you kind of get a bit annoyed. Uh, so we've sort of been de-skilled to some extent. So I think, you know, it is possible that we'll move in that direction and that cars will drive themselves, if, if not all the time, uh, some of the time. And uh, I think potentially that will actually lead to a reduction in accidents. And I think we will look back on the era of the car and say, why did we spend so much money on them? Why did we, where we only used them 4% of the time, we clogged up our streets with these stationary, very expensive objects that were either stationary or killing people. And we tolerate an extraordinary number of deaths. You know, more than 650,000 people have died in road accidents in America since the year 2000, which is more than all the people who've died in all the foreign wars America's ever fought. And so, you know, they really are, you wouldn't start from here. And I think that's really the message of the book, that how did we get to where we are? How did we end up? What were the choices we made? Well, we didn't really make them. It was sort of a series of accidents, what, uh, you know, economists would call path dependency. And I think illuminating those as we make choices, as we look beyond the car, is a useful thing to do. And what do I think does come after the car? I think it's a patchwork of lots of different means of transport, public transport, which is much more usable if you have a smartphone app that tells you when the next bus or train is going to come. Things like scooters and, and bikes that you can unlock with an app, ride hailing, and maybe in the future, yes, autonomous cars and flying, you know, passenger drones and things like that. But I think if you knit all of these things together using an app so that you just say, I want to get from A to B and it finds the best way to do it, that's a much more compelling alternative to owning a car than anything we've ever had before. And the direction of travel here is very clear. Owning a car is becoming more and more inconvenient and more and more expensive. And the alternatives to owning a car are becoming better and better and more and more convenient. And so in a sense, the thing that comes after, I call this the internet of motion, sort of weaving everything together. Uh, but it's in a sense, what you're really using is your smartphone as a means of finding the best way of traveling from A to B. And of course, the smartphone also replaces the car in other ways as well. You use it to shop, you use it to meet people, you use it to buy stuff. And so um, in many ways, it's really the smartphone that has taken the, the societal role of the car. So I've been talking to Tom Standage. We've been talking about his new book, A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next, which is out now from Bloomsbury. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thanks very much for inviting me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.